This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. Light Matter is a digital product studio that helps some of the world's fastest growing startups and enterprise companies design and develop software applications. They build killer web and mobile apps, APIs, and help with some of the toughest legacy transformations. Check them out at lightmatter.com forward slash saster. Up today, Chris O'Neill, partner at Portage 3 Ventures, on adjusting your sales to navigate today's choppy waters. I'm thrilled to be with you here today. Thank you, Jason, and the Saster community for including me. I've spent a bunch of my career in and out of the Valley. So I've been in the Valley off and on for about 22 years. I've held a bunch of technology leadership roles uh, in startups, in rocket ships, and in turnarounds, including about 10 years at Google and just over three years uh, leading uh, efforts at Evernote. I currently serve on the board of directors at Gap, and earlier this year, I decided to take my operator experience and perspective to pursue a career as a full-time investor. I grew up in a really small town in Canada on the shores of Lake Huron. And in that community, sailing was a really big part of the community and the way of life. So although I never really became a great sailor, I really love the metaphor of sailing for life and for business. And I think we can have some fun with it in today's uh, talk, and I hope you'll indulge me. So with that, welcome on board. Let's set sail. So uh, over the course of those 20 or so odd years in technology leadership roles, I've seen my fair share of storms and or crises um, from the early days of the dot-com boom and bust to 2008, 2009 crisis, and then having a front row seat at some of these uh, turnarounds at iconic brands like Evernote and uh, more recently, uh, on the board at Gap, which is undergoing its own transformation. And there's, there's no shortage of advice floating around there, but the perspective I'll lend today is through, through that of an operator who's been through some of these crises, sailed through these storms, and made every mistake in the book uh, and have the scar tissues to, to show for it. So um, that's really what I'll do. And I'll start by just giving a sense as to what it clearly must feel like to everyone. It is gnarly out there. Uh, the seas are rough. It must feel like you're operating on the open seas with wind in your face and you know, gale force uh, winds causing, causing waves to crash at you from all sides. And, and if you're like me in these crises, you feel like, gosh, you could sink at any one point in time or get washed up on the rocks and the shores. And it's completely natural to, to feel this way. And I really do believe, however, that Roosevelt's quote is true. when he said, calm seas never made good sailors. And that's, of course, easy to say uh, and, and hard to really figure out what to do. And that's really the purpose of this call or this chat today. Uh, I do believe that great leaders thrive under adversity. You know, people who are entrepreneurs for all the right reasons, who have a deep personal commitment to the, the problem that they're solving, um, and then have an earned secret and uh, a special approach to solve that problem in, in an enduring way. Um, that's really what it's all about. Weathering these storms requires a steady hand on the wheel, it requires a resilient crew with endless reserves of grit. And if you're really on a mission that matters, I believe that it's, it's worthy and you have to persist through the storms. And to 
perhaps inject some good news into this crazy world we're living in is that storms have a way of washing away all that came before them, really thrashing previously held assumptions. And we're certainly seeing that today. So a lot of the assumptions uh, that held us back and held technology from fully being embraced are really being challenged. And of course, we're seeing many of the trends that have been in existence being accelerated by five, 10 plus years, um, whether it's telemedicine, e-commerce, uh, mental health, food delivery. We're, we're very well aware of these, these, uh, these COVID-fueled tailwinds, which are changing industries uh, literally in weeks as opposed to decades. And there's a quote in keeping with the sailing metaphor that I find myself coming back to at times like this. And it, it goes like this. It says, you know, the pessimist complains about the wind the optimist expects it to change while the leader adjusts the sales. And really that's the jumping off point for, uh, for our discussion today. We'll break, break it into three parts. The first will be you know, sharing five perspectives and things that I found to be useful in adjusting sales in the midst of a crisis or a turnaround. The second is really to how to think about your crew, really how to take care of your crew, how to up-level your crew, how to invest in them, um, how to listen and engage them, and then also how to think about your extended crew. And lastly, I'll share briefly just a few things that I see uh, on the horizon. First things first, adjusting the sales. So this crisis is very much like the wind and the gale forces on the open sea in that it's, it's the self-propagating, amorphous, ever-changing thing that requires us to take a different approach to how we lead. Um, and again, I'll, I'll dive into five specific things that, again, I found to be somewhat useful um, in, in times of crisis. And if I, if I pause just to, to reflect on the mistakes that I've made, and one of the biggest is really being too slow to react to a new reality, or a close cousin of that, which is to take a playbook or a set of assumptions that worked in the past and to extend them to a fundamentally new reality and fail miserably, or failing to unlearn previous behaviors or habits. Um, so the first of these five really starts with battening down the hatches. In crisis, you have to react, and your first job is to survive. And really specifically, I found scenario planning trumps future or fortune telling, right? Meaning you, you're not in the business of predicting the future. What you should really be in the business of doing is scenario planning to say, hey, what's the worst case and what's the best case? What's the base case? And invest your team's time and energy to say, hey, if this, then that. How can we prepare for a variety of scenarios so that we can nimbly respond to whatever comes our way uh, and adapt in accordingly to the situation? When I took the helm at Evernote in 2005, you know, many people had written the company off. Um, if, you, if you recall, it was one of the very first unicorns. It, it attracted capital from the top venture capitalists in the planet. Um, had you know could do no wrong until in many ways it could do no right, and the headlines were brutal. Uh, Evernote was written up as the first dead unicorn, among other unflattering uh, headlines, uh, and it was uh, somewhat of a risk of being true in that we had very limited resources and in, in cash uh, runway. So we had to fundamentally batten down the hatches and address cost in order to survive. So how do we do that? The first thing was, was really to adopt what I call a zero-based budgeting approach. We gathered every single line item of expense and we scrutinized every single one of them through the lens of, hey, can we survive? Um, and then we debated like hell uh, across the leadership team to say, hey, can we afford this or not? And it led to some, some decisive action 
um, difficult decisions. Uh, we shut down five offices. We said goodbye to many of our really talented colleagues. Uh, we shut down something called the Evernote Market, which was selling physical goods. Um, Sunset, some niche products like Evernote Food, which had nice followings, but I felt were distracting from the larger priorities. Um, we did all this by being thoughtful and compassionate with the employees and um, we're careful to communicate to our partners you know, why we we're doing this um, and, and really what to expect in the future. And the good news is it extended our runway by a minimum of six months. And that allowed us to redeploy resources into some of the things that really needed our attention, like the fundamentals of our product. Uh, we had way too many bugs, latency had grown too long and crashes were a problem with the product. So we, we spent a lot of time there. Another benefit was the ability and the confidence, frankly, to experiment, get back into experimentation mode with our business model, with our pricing, to really think about not just how we can shrink costs, but inflect growth on the top line so we could ultimately control our own destiny, which is in fact uh, what we did. So the, the lesson here, of course, is to save your powder, to really, really scrutinize every dollar of spend and keep your powder dry so that you can redeploy uh, on the other side and hopefully accelerate as, you, um, as, as that happens. The second is what I call establishing ground truth. So inevitably, when startups uh, evolve and start to scale, they get off course. And this is especially true in times of, of stormy weather, uh, almost by definition. And to invoke a sailing metaphor, in the days before GPS, sailors used the North Star to determine where they were, they, to figure out literally like their latitude. And I think the same is true in companies. So I'm a big fan of two concepts, like you have to understand where you're going and you have to understand where you are on that journey. So the, the North Star, um, when I describe this, it feels fluffy and very obvious. Uh, but I really can't think of a higher leverage thing if you don't have it in place already at your company to really get everyone rallied on what your North Star is. You know, what's your purpose? What's the dream, the rallying and inspirational purpose of your company that really binds everyone together? Um, a mission, really the, the overarching objective for your company at any one time. And then in times of crisis, I'm a fan of having like one singular objective or goal. Um, so when we, when we reached out to the community at Evernote in, the, in, the, in this turnaround, we really started to hear very consistently that the purpose of the company was more relevant in that time than it was at any other time in the company's history. Um, people were seeking to you know, gain control uh, and find a sense of calm in a world of constantly being overloaded with information. So they, they really wanted to find, you know, feel more organized and and feel somewhat more productive, whatever that meant to them. And that's the job that Evernote was hired to do. So that was really fantastic. And then the mission really set up nicely as an extension of that to help people remember everything and turn their ideas into action. So we spent a lot of time leading up to then our objective, which was to really reinvest in the core user experience, get back to the basics and deliver and untap the love that made the company and the product great in the first place. And really doing that provided needed clarity around which the entire company could revolve. Um, and then we, we doubled back on our current reality and our ground truth. And we're really brutally honest with everyone about where we were in terms of the company, in terms of the balance sheet, in terms of the team, in terms of our product. And really that's essential. So once you understand you know, your North Star and you have a sense of your ground truth, the question becomes, okay, how do you plot a course to go from one to the other, or at least move closer to, to your North Star? And that's really the, the third, which is really about charting a new course for growth. 
this is about a cleared and shared understanding of like the physics of how growth happens in your company. Um, and I have a really messy eye chart here uh, on the left-hand side. I'm not going to walk through it. Don't worry. Uh, but it should give you a sense as to how comprehensive people can be and companies can be when this is done right, but also how you can really quantify each step of the way. And why you want to do this might be obvious, but I'll state it anyways. It's, it's really to rally around facts and data as opposed to opinions. Um, there's lots of opinions at all times in companies, but you really want to rally around the facts. More specifically, you want to identify the single gear of your growth engine that's really slow or stalled where you bring to bear overwhelming force. In a B2B context, you can imagine overlaying um, the concept of go-to-market fit, which really outlines your, your approach and your playbook at every step of the way from awareness uh, to evaluation, purchase, and then pricing and, and renewals. Um, that's a really important thing to, to be really crisp on and know that these things almost certainly have changed in this crisis. So you have to go back and remap them. A close cousin of this is cohort analysis. And I'm not going to go into too many details here, but there are three things to look for here is just number one, the size of a cohort. So cohorts, of course, are usually expressed in months or quarters or even years. Uh, the second is the engagement level of that cohort meaning what percentage of that cohort is doing the thing that you really want them to do. In our case, it was capturing a note. And then lastly is just retention over time. How is it performing? And that in many ways, of course, is, is the most single most important determinant of your success in SaaS. Um, if you're really interested in this topic, I highly encourage you to read Sarah Tavel's classic hierarchy of engagement. It's just fantastic. And it really goes into um, lots of details here. So how, how do you, you do this in addition to mapping it out? You have to actually go and talk to your customers. Uh, again, this might sound obvious or common sense, but it's not always common, commonly practiced. So get out there, get in touch with them and truly listen to them. Their needs have changed. Their pain points have inevitably shifted. So you have to listen to them and understand how to stay top of mind. At Evernote, one of the first things that I did was ask the team to send me a list of like 50 or 60 customers. And I just started outreaching to, to them and calling them directly uh, to gain a sense of the visceral feedback and the sense of what was truly going on. And the, the customers and the members of the community were super receptive. And in many ways, that did give me a really gr good grounding as to what our priorities ought to be. Um, so I, I highly encourage you know, that, that as an activity and borrowing a, a metaphor, this, this notion of Davy Crockett comes from a friend of mine named Bob Tinker, who's a great entrepreneur, the founding CEO of a company called Mobile Iron. He talks about channeling your inner Davy Crockett. And what he means by that is in the early stages of starting a company, you're in like Davy Crockett mode. If you think about backwoods explorers coming over the Appalachian Mountains, you, know, you and your team are off in the, in the woods foraging your way and finding your way through. And it's usually messy. It's through experimentation and iteration. Um, and if you're lucky enough to survive long enough, you can start to build a sense of what's working and where the dead ends are. And you can crystallize and distill the things that are working into a playbook. And if you're really good, you can start to to rally around that playbook. And all of a sudden you emerge like not a ragtag bunch of backwoods explorers, but like an army that's like charging across the, the plains. And he likes to call that the Braveheart mode, but uh, I digress. That's um, really a call in this crisis to get back to your Davy Crockett. You have to learn to unlearn. 
about two, three months ago, everything changed literally overnight. Uh, so your value proposition, your messaging, your positioning, and most likely elements of your product just have to change. And they line up around two broad areas in, in what I'm seeing. The first, of course, is just to save money. Everyone's really watching every single uh, dollar that they're spending. Now, the CEOs literally have like spreadsheets open with every, every line item. Um, so, so finding ways to address that is obvious. Secondly, is to really reposition what you do from like a nice to have or an innovation budget to something that's essential or must have that really reflects how people are doing business today uh, and or operating their companies. Um, and I'll share with you maybe a counterintuitive example from the 2008-2009 timeframe while I was at Google. For context, it's hard to imagine, but in Q1 of 2009, Google laid people off and had its first down revenue quarter uh, in, in its history, I believe. Um, and that was like super shocking. But really when you unpack it, Google at the time was primarily viewed as this tactic that primarily drove traffic to e-commerce sites. You know, it did other things, but primarily that was the main source of revenue. And I was responsible for the retail relationships at the time. So that was really shocking to us that people were starting to pull back. What we did was really started to challenge those assumptions and really adopted what we call the more for less strategy. And what specifically we did, we approached media buyers and or the retailers themselves. And we created spreadsheets for every single category that that retailer had. And we showed that with very small shifts in media allocation towards Google in this case, that they could get at least the same, if not more traffic for fundamentally less cost. And it really changed the game and people really embraced that. Um, but we didn't stop there. We also challenged the, the, the sacred cow or the assumption at the time that the website was cannibalizing store sales, like in, in the bricks. Um, so we decided to, to queue up 50 or 60 experiments that really were controlled causal uh, experiments that really got after that. And we proved definitively that when you drive traffic to a specific category on a website, rather than cannibalizing, it actually boosted sales in the store. So really started to challenge some of the, some of the conventions. And then the company became more relevant to the C-suite rather than just you know, the director of e-commerce. So that's one example of many. So if you haven't experimented with an ROI calculator in your go-to-market motion, I'd highly encourage it. Um, it seems to be you know, almost a necessity in today's world. Shifting to the, the fifth is, is around pricing. So pricing is obviously a very powerful lever. I'd argue it's, it's one of the most powerful levers in SaaS, uh, yet the least understood or the most misunderstood, perhaps. I talked a little bit about the cost side of Evernote, and that really bought us time. But really, the improvements we made to some of the product experience and then the pricing and packaging were really the keys to inflecting top-line growth and doubling subscriber base and, and li literally putting the company in, in control of its own destiny. And the way we went about this is really interrogating the value that got the people in the community derived from, from our product. In this case, it was the ability to capture ideas in any format, anywhere, anytime, on any platform, and then use that insight to align our business model against it. So specifically, we adopted a Netflix-like model in that to unlock premium features, we asked people with three or more devices to pay for those premium features. We also raised prices by 30 to 40% at the same time. 
So clearly wasn't a very popular person on Twitter for several days or weeks, but really this move allowed us to stay in the game and, and um, continue to, to improve our product. Interestingly, we saw an improvement in conversion rates and we saw an improvement in retention rates, which were very counterintuitive. And more generally, I just think pricing is so misunderstood and most people, most companies don't charge enough. And then they starve themselves of the ability to invest in great product, um, starve themselves of the ability to invest in great go-to-market machinery that really allows people to get um, to, to try and, and find customers on a consistent basis. So that, that's, a, I think, is, is really important to consider in pricing. In today's environment, there's a very uneven uh, experience in terms of economic impact. And to simplify, there's those who are struggling to keep up with demand and those who are struggling to find and retain customers. And, you know, if you're in the first camp, like, oh, congratulations, good for you. I also would encourage you to resist the urge to increase prices and ride the wave. Well, it might seem like a good thing to extract some surplus in the midst. Um, I think it will have a potentially a poor impact on your brand in the short and most likely the long term too. Um, maybe you can think about in that situation, new layers of value, uh, white glove service, a different premium uh, product extension, uh, and then charge more for that. Um, in effect, raising your prices without actually being perceived as gouging or profiteering. For most, uh, we're, we're struggling with the opposite, which is really how do you retain um, and, and prepare for inevitable churn? So to protect the number of customers, protect long-term ARR and lifetime value. Um, it's super hard to find new customers. We all know that. It's easier to upsell them or resell them later when times return to a slightly more normal state. I think it's helpful as a tactic to classify and be really rigorous about doing your customer base along value and risk. Uh, and really clearly tripling down on the high value folks, but also know that like not all customers can be saved and not all customers need to be saved. One tactic that is very popular, people are going to be asked for discounts. It's easy to, it's not easy always, but one tactic that has been successful is to extend the terms of the contract and lower the overall cost on a, on a per month or, or per year basis. I guess I like that, but I'm more a fan of, of being a little more creative to look for ways in which you could do more, you know, offer more for the money. So things like no risk trials, uh, free cancellations, performance rebates, loyalty credits, you name it. And the last thing on pricing that I, I think is a good, a good way to think about it is free months as opposed to discounts. And the benefit there is, is um, you can end them more easily without having to have another um, charged conversation. So th those are the five big areas that I found to be successful, especially in the midst of a crisis. Light Matter is a digital product studio that helps some of the world's fastest growing startups and enterprise companies design and develop software applications. They build killer web and mobile apps, APIs, and help with some of the toughest legacy transformations. Check them out at lightmatter.com forward slash saster.